in the uh, letter to the Romans today. So we're going through a sermon series uh, in the letter to the Romans, and today we're up to chapter 14. just want to remind you that Romans, uh, Romans is all about the gospel of God. And uh, ever since chapter 12, Paul has been applying the gospel to, uh, to life, you know, how to live uh, out uh, what it means to be, um, yeah, to belong to Jesus. And uh, so far, really the summary of what a, a gospel life looks like is a life of love, you know, loving others. And uh, we're going to see more about that uh, today in this um, section. So chapters 14 to 15 are a, a specific problem in the church at Rome where Paul applies the gospel to that situation. And so we're going to see more about how that works out. So today we're looking at chapter 14, uh, just verses 1 to 12. So I'll read it and then I'll um, explain what it's all about. So hear God's word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour the, of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lives, lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the way that it addresses uh, many of the challenges that uh, we face in life. And so we pray that as we uh, hear this passage, that uh, you would help us, Lord, to apply it uh, in our own situation, uh, that we might uh, find uh, help and guidance uh, so that we might live in a way that honours you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, one of the things that you eventually come to realise uh, once you've been in church for a while is that uh, no two people are exactly alike. And I'm not just talking about looks, I'm talking about uh, our opinions, you know, what we think. 
Uh, for example, there are um, in our church we have people who vote Liberal and people who vote Labor. Uh, we have uh, parents who send their children to um, private school, uh, some send to public school, and some even homeschool. Uh, we have a huge variety of opinions on health, on uh, medication, um, diets, <clears throat> vaccines, <clears throat> uh, music, even things like tattoos and uh, consumption of alcohol. Uh, there are different opinions on what Bible translation we should be using. There are different opinions on the best way to celebrate Christmas. And in, in all of these kinds of topics, there are strong opinions even. And sometimes those strong opinions can even come into conflict with each other. So a good example of that would be uh, to rewind you know, a couple of years, uh, you know, long before COVID, many of us had an opinion on vaccines, but then, you know, a pandemic hits, then suddenly those opinions become sources of conflict. And so that raises a big question for us. Does a church community have to agree on everything in order to have unity? Okay, does a church community need to agree on every opinion before we can have real unity together? Or are there some issues where we can agree to disagree? Are there some issues where a diversity of opinions is fine and we can still have unity together? Now, that's what this section of Romans is all about. See, Romans chapter 14 uh, to about halfway through chapter 15, it's one long discussion on uh, how to get along with people in the church that you disagree with over what Paul will call disputable matters. Okay, there's a, there's a category called disputable matters. Sometimes there's disagreements. How do you uh, deal with them? That's, that's the topic. And we're looking at the first um, half of uh, chapter 14, uh, so ch verses 1 to 12. And we're going to consider this topic of disputable matters, and we'll look at it under three headings. We'll think about what they are, how they can divide, and lastly, how, how we ought to handle them. Okay, so disputable matters. First, what are they? What do we mean when we talk about disputable matters? Well, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 14, notice how uh, Paul kind of raises the issue. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So this is the first time in the letter to the Romans that we hear that there was a problem in the Church of Rome in that first century. And it sounds like there was a potential division about to take place. Uh, people were quarrelling over what Paul calls opinions. And the word he uses for opinions, it's, it's a hard one to translate from the original language, uh, which you can tell when you look at the way different translations have translated it. So the uh, New King James Version uh, calls these things uh, Doubtful things. The NIV has disputable matters, which I think is um, a very helpful way of putting it. Uh, sometimes theologians call uh, these opinions uh, matters of conscience, and then others call them personal preferences. But whatever we, we call them, it's clear in the way that Paul talks about them 
that he's talking about issues of which God's word doesn't mandate one way or the other. Okay, that there's actually freedom uh, on these different topics, freedom to, uh, to think one way or the other, and freedom to practice one thing or another. Um, but there are issues where some Christians can struggle to embrace that freedom. You know, some Christians still feel bound by certain rules and certain traditions which are actually not mandated in God's Word. And Paul gives us a couple of examples of those in these verses. So if you look at verse 2, he says, One person believes he may eat anything, uh, while, the, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Um, now, he's not talking about veganism or anything there. This was a, a different issue, which I'll explain in a minute. Uh, another example he gives is down in verse 5. Uh, one person esteems one day as better, better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And so you got, there's, there's been some you know, difference of opinion on um, various food laws, and then we can see there's various opinions on sacred days. And so it seems that the actual issue was between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in that church in Rome in the first century. Uh, you see, the, the Jewish believers there, they had grown up with um, all of their customs about kosher food. And they had grown up with all of these um, holy days in their Jewish calendar. And all of those uh, kosher food laws and sacred days, all of that was laid out in the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. So if you read through a book of Leviticus, it's normally where we get um, stuck in our um, yearly Bible reading plan because uh, there's so many laws about all these uh, very odd things. But all of those laws that spelled out for the Israelite how they were to live, and those laws were for just a limited time. So once Jesus came... All of those laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness and all those things, all those sacred days, they were all fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus. So that's how we're made clean, not by keeping certain food laws, but by trusting in Jesus. And that's why we read in Mark 7 early that uh, Jesus pronounced all foods clean because he has finally come and, and brought the cleanliness uh, that we need. Now, the apostles had taught that to the Christians in the first century. So it was, you know, everyone knew it, everyone had heard it. However, for the Jewish Christians, even though they'd heard that the ceremonial law was no longer in effect, no longer binding on Christians, for them they still felt uncomfortable in eating any kind of food. Okay, They still felt very uncomfortable in skipping the sacred days in the Jewish calendar. And so, for example, if, um, you know, if you lived back then and you invited one of your Jewish friends to um, McDonald's for breakfast and ordered a bacon and egg McMuffin, is that still a thing? Yep. So, you know, if you put that before them, they would feel a very deep discomfort about the bacon because pork was not allowed according to the kosher laws. <clears throat> and so for them to, to eat bacon, for them to uh, skip a Passover ceremony, even though it was not morally wrong, for them it still felt like disobedience. You know, there was that, that pang of conscience. They felt like they couldn't do it, that it felt wrong for them to do that. 
And, uh, and so what happened in the first century, even though many Jewish people became Christians and were released from those kosher laws, many of them just kept living that way because that's what they were comfortable with. That's what they were used to. And in one sense, that was fine. They were free to do that as Christians. They could, they could choose to eat or choose not to eat. They could choose to go to uh, certain ceremonies or not go to certain ceremonies. They were free in Christ to do that. But so here's the thing. Imagine you're part of a church community. It starts out as, uh, as a bunch of Jewish Christians, you know, all with your same customs and traditions. And then the church starts to fill up with new Christians, and they're Gentiles. These are people who have never grown up with those food laws, you know, who eat whatever they like. And your church starts to fill up with these Gentile believers, and over time, the Gentile believers become the majority. And then what happens? Uh, well, you know, a newcomer named Mrs. Gentile, she comes to the end-of-year church barbecue with her famous pork chop dish, and she serves that at the, uh, at the lunch, and maybe some of the kids are eating that, and the, and the Jewish Christians are like, ah, what's going on? And then as the, the church uh, becomes uh, more of a Gentile uh, influence, you know, suddenly church events start clashing with the Jewish calendar. And so tensions start growing. You know, things start getting complicated. Disputes start, start breaking out. And, and some believers, it seems, in the Church of Rome were accusing other believers of disobeying God on these matters, even though they weren't. And so that's the issue Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with disputable matters. These are things, these are practices or opinions where God hasn't bound us by his word, where he has left us free to do either one thing or another. And yet some Christians struggle with that freedom. Some Christians kind of feel like, no, there still are some laws. There's still an issue of obedience, uh, even though it's one of freedom. Now, what's interesting about this whole issue is that when Paul addresses the people who are on either sides of the debate, he doesn't address them as Jews and Gentiles. Instead, he uses some completely different labels. He uses the label of weak and strong. That's an interesting label. Now, he's not saying that weak Christians are you know, somehow deficient, uh, that they are maybe less of a Christian than the strong ones. He's not saying that. All he's saying is that some Christians don't have as developed an understanding of how to apply God's word to different situations. Uh, the strong are those who understand the freedom that they have in Christ, whereas the weak Christians tend to not think in categories of freedom, but rather in categories of rules and uh, obedience. And so the weak Christians, they're the ones who can feel like something is wrong, even though it's not. Uh, the weak Christians are those who feel bound by certain rules or traditions that are actually not uh, mandated in God's word. And so it was an issue of conscience. Uh, the conscience of some believers is more scrupulous than God's word is. Now, some, some believers feel like there are areas of obedience where there are actually areas of freedom. And... Uh, and so that, that was the issue. That, that's what we're talking about, disputable matters. Hey, God has left us free, yet some people don't feel that freedom. 
Now, where do the weak people, or sorry, the weak Christians, where do they get their opinions from then? Okay, if they're not so much shaped by scripture, what are they shaped by? And this is where it's helpful to see the context at the time. See, it was the Jewish Christians, they struggled with being free to eat anything. And the reason for that is because they had grown up with certain traditions and certain customs. And, uh, and so it really came down to what they were used to. Okay, it's what they were familiar with. And that's a helpful insight for when we think about whether or not we are one of the weak believers. You know, are, are there issues in, in our lives where God has actually left us free, but we still feel bound to do a certain thing? And one of the ways to think that through is to actually look at what we're used to, you know, what we grew up with, what traditions uh, we were a part of or what culture we came from. And so that does, it actually means that we can have different viewpoints that are shaped more by our upbringing or by the culture we're from or the tr- traditions that we grew up with more than they're shaped by what God's Word actually says on the issue. And so we can be people who, who feel very strongly against something that other Christians do when it's actually something God has left us free to do. And this is helpful to spend a lot of time reflecting on uh, because, you know, we all fit into the weak category on some issues. And I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, if I ever go to another church that's in a, a different tradition, you know, not, not a Presbyterian church, I might enter that church and there'll be a very different worship style, something I'm not used to, something that's very foreign to me. You know, perhaps the church might have very loud music and coloured lights and smoke machines and, and when people sing, you know, they put their hands in the air. Now, if I'm in that context, I need to remind myself that they're not doing something that's wrong. It's not morally wrong to have all of those uh, things. It's, it's just a different tradition than what I'm used to. You know, it might not be something that I necessarily enjoy, but it's not wrong. It's just different. See, there is freedom uh, in that. Actually, that actually <laughs> reminds me of, does anyone here, anyone here old enough to remember the worship wars? Remember, that used to be a thing um, back when churches were transitioning from um, organs and choirs uh, to microphones and guitars. And at the time, there was, you know, people go around talking about the worship wars because what would happen is you'd have those who, who loved the traditional style of, of doing um, church music and those who were very eager to adopt a new contemporary style. And so it led to disputes. You know, one wanted one way, one wanted another. Um, some churches tried to get around that by actually uh, dividing the congregation into different services. You know, one service is labelled the uh, contemporary service and another service is labelled the traditional service and you could go to whichever one uh, fit your um, the style that you liked. Um, but it was called the worship wars because people were fighting over it. And my guess is that back then people had all of their biblical reasons why they preferred one way or the other. But in reality, do you know what it was a fight over? A disputable matter, okay? Because God has left us free. He hasn't stated whether it has to be this or that instrument or this or that style. We're free. Uh, to choose what is best. 
and in this case, what will lead to um, unity. And so the first application of this passage is very simple. It's just to recognize that there is a category called disputable matters. Okay, there are areas where God has left us free, but we need to realize that some Christians don't, don't feel that freedom. They still feel bound, and we need to recognize that category. Now, this category of disputable matters, as you can see, it's very different to what I'm going to call indisputable matters. What's an indisputable matter? That's something in which all Christians must agree on. So, for example, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, we all agree on that. Okay, if we don't agree with that, we're actually not a Christian because that's the very core of what we believe in, that Jesus died and he rose again. Okay, and so and we can't have, you know, some people believe in the resurrection, some people don't, and we're all one in Christ. No, we must all agree on the resurrection. That's a core doctrine. Uh, like that with, you know, the whole doctrine of God. You know, God is three in one, triune. You know, God is holy, just, loving, faithful, kind. You know, we, we all have to agree on that. Actually, um, Jill made her profession of faith today. Did you hear all the things that Jill agreed to? They're all things that we all have to agree to as Christians. Why? Because they're all clearly mandated in God's word. Okay, we all have to believe in the authority of Scripture. We have to believe salvation is in Christ alone. We have to believe that God has set standards for morality in the Ten Commandments. Okay, they're, they're not negotiable things. They're not, you know, take it or leave it. They're not agree to disagree things. They're all indisputable matters. Right? But what Paul is talking about in Romans 14 and 15 are disputable things, things where there is freedom to have difference of, of opinion. And we need to uh, grow in our ability to be able to distinguish between what is a disputable matter and what is an indisputable matter. And that will actually lead to being able to relate to each other in a more mature way, in a way where there can be diversity of opinion and yet still enjoying our unity in Christ. And so that's the first thing. We need to be able to, dis to identify what are disputable matters and even not expect uniformity in these matters. Okay, so that's the first thing. Now, the second thing we see in this passage is we need to be aware of how these disputable matters can become sources of conflict, you know, how they can turn into division. And we see that in verses 3 and 4 here. Uh, so this is our second point, how disputable matters um, become divisive. So look at verse 3. Um, Paul says, let not the one who eats despise uh, the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Now, did you notice the two key words in that, that sentence? The, the key words were despise and pass judgment. And Paul uses very specific words in addressing both sides of the debate. Because you've got the strong believers what are they going to be tempted to do? They're going to be tempted to despise the weak. Whereas the weak, what are they going to be tempted to do? Pass judgment. And Paul uses those words very carefully because this is the heart of the issue when it comes to um, disagreements. And so if you think about the church at Rome again, remember they're, they're all fighting over 
uh, what food you're meant to eat, uh, what days you're supposed to observe as holy days. And the strong believers, who were mostly from the Gentile community, they understood, when they heard the apostles teach that the ceremonial law, with all of those food laws, wasn't binding on Christians, that was easy for them to accept because they'd never been under that. So, you know, that all makes sense to them. Uh, whereas the Jewish believers, they, you know, they still feel, felt bound. But here's the thing. The strong believers who understood their freedom, they would be tempted to look at the Jewish believers who still struggled, feeling like they, they weren't free to eat certain things, and they were tempted to look at them and despise them. Okay, despise means to look down on someone. It means to consider that person stupid or ignorant, you know, not, not able to comprehend things as clearly. That was a temptation of the strong. And so the strong, you know, could easily go around thinking like they're the superior ones, that they're the ones with a higher intellect. Uh, they might, may have even poked fun at their Jewish brothers and sisters behind their backs. You know, how silly is this? They're not even going to eat a piece of bacon. Uh, they may have even flaunted their freedom by eating in front of them just to, just to kind of offend them. Now you can see what that would do. What's that going to lead to? Conflict. Okay, and so that's why Paul says, don't despise the weak. Now he's going to talk a lot more next week, uh, when we look at it next week, in how the strong should relate to the weak. Um, but for now, we just need to realize there's a hard issue going on, and that is the, the, the tendency for the strong to look down on the weak and think, you know, what is wrong with you? Okay, you're stupid, and we're not to do that. Now, the weak believers, they also have a deadly tendency, but it's not to look down or despise. Paul says their tendency is to pass judgment. And to pass judgment... Uh, that, that means to condemn someone as a lawbreaker. But here's the thing. What, what law are the weak people using to pass judgment? It's not God's law. It's their own law. Okay? It's their own conscience, the way they feel bound. They're then uh, measuring others by, by that same law and then condemning other people. Now, again, I can give an example of this from my own life. Uh, when I grew up, in, I, you know, I grew up in a home where uh, my mum was very wary of, uh, you know, rock music and um, pop music and the messages that they could convey. And so, as a kid growing up, I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music. Um, we weren't allowed to listen to the radio. And I went along to a youth group that reinforced that opinion. You know, we used to watch videos about how evil rock music is and and how it can lead young people to do all kinds of terrible things. And uh, just by the way, it, it made no difference to me and my brother because we just used to listen to the radio in secret. Um, so, you know, rules themselves don't necessarily change hearts. But anyway, when I, be, when I finally became a Christian at age 18, uh, it turns out that the rules that I'd grown up with were deeply embedded in my conscience. And so as a, a new Christian thinking, you know, I want to live a godly life. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to listen to that bad music, uh, heathen music, we called it. Um, I'm not going to listen to heathen music anymore. Um, but then when I met other Christians who did listen to secular music, then do you know what I did? I looked at them and I thought, well, you know, you kind of wonder whether they're even a Christian. 
because they're clearly living an openly sinful life. It looks like they don't even have any regard for God. What was I doing? I was a weak believer passing judgment on others. Now, I've since had my conscience liberated. I can enjoy all kinds of music without necessarily embracing um, the message that uh, some of the songs might be conveying. Um, But, you know, early on in my Christian life, I was the weak believer passing judgment on the strong believer. And so that's the natural tendency of um, the weak believer. In some ways, the weak believer, the danger that they have is to be like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Remember the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they made up all of these rules. They had all of these extra traditions that they expected everyone else to follow, even though they had made them up um, themselves. And so when someone like Jesus came along, and uh, Jesus, uh, you know, he didn't do exactly what the Pharisees expected on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus would have meals with people that the Pharisees had ruled out. No, you're not to associate with those people. And so when they see Jesus um, doing certain things on the Sabbath that they had ruled out or, or eating with certain people, what did they do? They looked at Jesus with suspicion. And eventually they wrote him off as an evil person and wouldn't have anything to do with him. And see, that's, that's the danger that we have. It's easy for us to do that to other believers who, who don't share our opinions on disputable matters. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 4 to show that you know, those who pass judgment are actually setting themselves up as rival authorities to God. See, look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Okay, it's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so here we can see very clearly God is the only one who has the right to set the standards. Okay, only God can make the rules, not us. And if we try to impose our rules on other people, you know, rules that are extra to what God's word says, then, then we are actually acting like rival authorities to God. You know, setting up new standards and trying to bind other people by them. In fact, Paul makes this a gospel issue because he says at the end of verse 4 that the Lord is able to make the strong person stand. And what Paul is referring to there is the standing that we have in Christ. See, everyone who believes in Jesus, God gives you a standing. And do you know what that standing is? It is faultless. Okay, he takes the righteousness of Christ and he credits it to you. So everyone who trusts in Jesus are considered righteous in God's sight. That's how you stand. And and, and that's the thing, like, every believer has that standing. That's the way we should look at each other. We shouldn't look at each other in a condemning way, thinking, well, because you don't keep the same standards that that I keep, that I've made up, that therefore you probably don't belong. See, that would be to reject the standing that we have in Christ. And so, you know, if if we're ever, you know, looking at other Christians and thinking, well, they have a different view of parenting to me, or, you know, oh, they send their kids to public school, or, oh, they homeschool, or, or whatever it is, whatever extra rule we we make up, if we condemn other Christians over that and think that somehow they're lesser or or they don't belong or their standing might not be as as solid as ours, then we've actually fallen into this um, mistake that the the people in the Church of Rome were doing of passing judgment. See, it's who we are in Christ that makes us stand. And that's the way we need to look. 
uh, at each other. Uh, in fact, it's this gospel, you know, I've been right in Christ. It's this gospel that is the source of our unity and only this gospel, nothing else, right? The deep fellowship that we have between other Christians because of who we are in Christ. That's what means we can get along, okay? We can treat each other with the same status that we have uh, from God. But see, if we insist on forcing our opinions on these disputable matters, if we try to force that on other believers, what we're essentially doing is trying to shift the basis of our fellowship away from the gospel to our opinions. And if, if a church does that, do you know what happens? We become a closed community to everyone else who has a different opinion. And so we can see how this it becomes you know, quite a, a big departure from the gospel if we allow these extra things to become the focus. As if we, we, it's like we're adding to our profession of faith, signing up with, you know, here's some extra rules that we've also added uh, to, for you to belong. But our unity does not depend on what opinion we take on disputable matters. It depends on Christ himself. Okay, so on disputable matters, first we, need, we know what they are. We know that they're the things that the Bible doesn't forbid, but some Christians still feel uncomfortable with them. Uh, we know how divisive they can be if we either despise others over them or pass judgment. But then how do we actually handle them, though? How do we handle them well in a way that does promote unity, in a way that promotes fellowship uh, between believers, even when we have disagreements? How can we handle these things well? Well, that's the third thing, and uh, this is the letter to the Romans, right? Which means the answer to how we handle them well is going to be the gospel itself. Okay, because every issue Paul raises, he always applies the gospel to it. And that's what we need to do. We need to apply the gospel into how we handle our disagreements over disputable matters. And in the passage, we can see there's the three principles that Paul draws out about how the gospel shapes the way we handle disagreements. And the first one that he raises is we need to welcome one another. And that's right in verse 1, that word welcome. You know, we need to welcome those that we disagree with. And in some ways that could be, the word welcome is almost a description of the gospel. Because Paul goes on later on at the very end of this whole discussion in chapter 15, verse 7, uh, where he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another, listen, as Christ has welcomed you. That's a summary of the gospel. See, when you put your trust in Jesus, Christ welcomes you in. Right? And when he welcomes you, he doesn't merely tolerate you. Okay? Salvation is not like you get, a, you get a ticket into heaven, but Jesus says, now, you stay down that end of heaven because you're a little bit weird and I'm not sure I like your opinions, so you just stay over there. You're allowed in, but not too close. No, no, when Christ welcomes you, it's the, it's the idea of bringing you into the inner circle. Welcome in the Bible is very often associated with eating at the same table. And that's the kind of welcome that we receive from Christ when we put our trust in him. And so to be welcomed, it's, it's this embrace of, of feeling like you truly belong, that you're one of the team, okay? that you're not, no longer a stranger, that you're on our side, you're one of us. 
And that's the welcome that we have from Christ. And, and Jesus, he didn't wait until we had all of our thinking straightened out before he welcomed us. Because Romans 5 verse 6 said that while we were weak, Christ <clears throat> died for us. And so that's the welcome we have from Jesus, which means we are to then extend that same welcome to one another. Even where there are disagreements, we're still to welcome one another. You know, you're still one of us. You're still on our side. <clears throat> you're still part of the inner circle. And notice in verse 1 that welcoming excludes quarreling. See, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And, and that is telling us that you know, if, if we are someone who always feels like we have to try and straighten everyone out over every little opinion, you know, you know make everyone like us, if, if we feel we have to do that, what we're actually doing is that we're not welcoming, we're actually pushing people away. Okay, we're, we're pushing people out. And that's not our role. Okay, God is the one who decides who's in and out, not us. And if he has welcomed someone in through the cross of his son, then how dare we try to push them out again over some disputable matter? So you know where to welcome, okay? Even agree to disagree so that you can welcome one another. Now, the other way uh, Paul applies the gospel here is to remind both the weak and the strong of the lordship of Christ. See, in verses 5 to 9, we'll look at this very quickly, uh, Paul shows us that Jesus died and rose again. Why? so that we can belong to him, so that we can have him as our king and that we can now live our lives to honour him. And Paul applies that to both, both sides of the debate, both the weak and the strong, saying, listen, the one who eats meat, what's he doing? He's, he's trying to obey God. Okay? He's doing it motivated to honour God. And the one who is weak who abstains, guess what? Same motivation wanting to do it in order to please God. And that's the thing. All true believers, what are they motivated by? Motivated by wanting to please the Lord. And so when it comes to disputable matters, the first thing is to look at them and go, well, even though they might not agree with me on it, at least their, their heart is right. They're motivated by actually doing it because they want to honour God. And see, if we can look at each other over these disputable matters and see that, what that does, it takes the heat out of any disagreement. Because we're not arguing over whether we'll obey God or not. Because both sides are wanting to. And so that actually leads to, um, you know, if you do ever have a discussion about it, it's not one of, um, you know, a heated argument. It's just looking at different approaches uh, in a more calm manner. And finally, Paul applies the gospel to this uh, situation by reminding us who the judge actually is. So in verses 10 to 12, uh, he talks about judgment day. And on Judgment Day, every single person, every one of us in this room and everyone out in the rest of the world, we're all going to stand before the judge, and that's God. And God will make us give an account of our lives, you know, the things that we did, uh, the opinions that we held. And he's the only one who has the right to pass judgment on our lives. And here's the thing, if you trust in Jesus, he's already passed judgment. Do you know what the judgment is? No condemnation. You're considered righteous. So you have nothing to fear on judgment day then. But if that's the case, then how can any of us assume that role of judge and pass judgment on fellow believers? 
Now, if God has said no condemnation, then who are we to then go around condemning? See how the gospel frees us of this need to, to judge other people. It's, we must not do it because it doesn't fit with uh, the gospel. So that's how we handle um, disputable matters. We welcome each other without quarreling. We assume the best motive in each other. And we leave all judgments to God. Now, we are going to come back to this um, next week because there's a whole lot more to say about it. Uh, but for now, just let me end by asking um, three questions. Number one, is there anyone in this church that you avoid or you look at with suspicion because they have different opinions on these disputable matters? Number two, is there anyone that you're not as open to, someone perhaps that you wouldn't have around for a meal because they're a little bit weird <laughs> and not like you? over these disputable matters? And number three, is there anyone that you are despising or passing judgment on? Now, if, if the answer to any of those is yes, then listen again to the end of verse three. God has welcomed him. God has welcomed her. In Christ, God has welcomed them. And if God has welcomed them, then who are we to push them out? Who are we to look at them in any other way? We need to do the same. We need to welcome them. Okay. <clears throat> well, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so thrilled that you, the holy God, who lives in unapproachable light, that you would reach out and welcome us in, people who don't deserve to be in the light of your presence, people who rather do deserve to be shut out of your presence for all of eternity <clears throat> and, and to be in darkness, to, to face the consequences of all of our our sin against you. Uh, but we thank you, Father, that in your love you sent your Son to go to that cross and pay for all of our sins so that we can be welcomed in, so that we can have fellowship and unity with you. And Father, we thank you that as a church community that we're a, a body of people who have experienced that welcome uh, from you. And Lord, we uh, pray that that would shape how we treat each other here, that when we have uh, disagreements over things that, that you've left us free on, uh, we pray that we would be very, we would be very careful uh, not to despise uh, those who differ or not to pass judgment, uh, but help us, Lord, to love one another and to treat each other with honour, uh, to be welcoming and not uh, pushing people away. We pray, Heavenly Father, that that would display uh, to the world a, a unique community because we know that in this, this culture we live in, there's so much division, so much fighting. And uh, we only have to look at social media and see all of the ways in which people condemn and pass judgment on people who differ. And, Father, we don't want to be like that here. We want to be a, a, a true community, a community where, where love is practiced. And so we pray that you would help us to do that, that the world would then take notice and see the difference that Jesus makes and that that would be for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name.